It was the mother load that Congress, journalists, and many others have been seeking for years. President Trump's tax returns, dating back more than two decades. And yet, on Sunday, the New York Times revealed it had them, laying out the tangled finances, sketchy practices, and huge debts that have been the hallmark of Trump's business career since day one. The big headline, of course, is that Trump only paid $750 in federal income taxes the year he was elected president, and the same amount again his first year in office. What more can be learned from this examination of the records that Trump has fought for years to keep secret? And what are the stakes for both candidates in tonight's first presidential debate? We'll discuss the tax returns with David Enrich, business investigations editor of the New York Times, and we'll get a debate take from two savvy political consultants, Mike Murphy and Kristen Soltis Anderson, on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So quite the bombshell on Sunday, I have to say. I uh, saw it pop up on my iPhone Sunday afternoon, and I immediately began reading. This is one of the few 10,000-word stories I read all the way through. Not sure I understood it all, but, <laughs> but, but the basic point that Trump, the supposed billionaire, paid a paltry $750 in federal income taxes is there. It was in the lead. It's the point that I think a lot of people are going to be remembering. We are all getting a crash course on the ins and outs um, of the American tax code. But first of all, hats off to The New York Times, a huge scoop and a hugely important story, Trump being the first president really since Richard Nixon to not turn over his uh, tax uh, Returns. Of course, Nixon's origin was forced to because of questions about whether he had actually paid his income taxes. And I think he had to pay back something like $400,000. But this could not, of course, come at a worse time for Donald Trump on the uh, eve of the first presidential debate, his really his big chance to try to change the momentum um, in, in this race. And the story is damaging to Trump in so many different ways. One is it really kind of peels the bark off uh, him in terms of whether he was a the successful uh, the really successful mogul and businessman that he has always uh, said he was, and it makes but, you but, wonder but didn't if we this know, really. We didn't we know that was all bluster. I mean, you know, we reported on his bankruptcies and all his business failures over we the did years. Not, it was yes, kind of baked we did in not. Yes, but we did not. We did not know. Look, this story says that for ten out of fifteen years, he did not pay taxes, largely because he was putting in more money into these businesses that he was taking out. He wasn't making money. And beyond that, you know, he's in debt, you know, somewhere to the tune of close to half a mil- half a billion dollars. So, you know, the extent of it really does 
matter, I think. And the other thing is, I think it, you know, in some ways it, it is very damaging in terms of the, the dynamics of the race, because the only thing that Donald Trump can really do to change things here is to try to turn this into a choice, not a referendum on his first term as president. And the way he was, one way he was going to try to do that was with the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett, uh, which was a, you know, a real gift coming this late in the uh, presidential campaign. There will, I'm sure, be discussion of the Supreme Court nomination at the debate, but this really does shift the focus away from that. And I think in some ways, clearly will shift the focus to you know, Donald Trump and whether he was, you know, how he was gaming the system, how he was you know, not the businessman that uh, he, you know, he said he was. But also, I think it gives an opportunity to Biden to go back to, to the things that he wanted to talk about, like coronavirus, right. uh, which is where he is going to be strong. I, I think you're going to hear a lot from uh, Biden about uh, health care and, uh, and COVID. And I think you'll hear a lot from Trump about Hunter Biden and, um, and AOC. In fact, I, that would be my, uh, my guess uh, that we'll hear from Trump very quickly. Quickly, the name of Hunter Biden and the squad and all that to try to paint Biden as beholden to the uh, far left of his party. I do think I mean, I agree with the general consensus that, that, that there's a lot riding on this debate, especially for Trump. He's got to make up ground. But, you know, I think that just remember the nomination confirmation hearings uh, for Amy Coney Barrett start on October 12th. They will get a lot of coverage. And I think it's going to be interesting to see, A, how she comes off. She, you know, seems like an appealing person from a personal standpoint, you know, mother of seven to uh, Haitian children who she adopted, a, um, a special needs child. I think so from, you know, that I think the Democrats do have to be a little careful about how hard they go after her. A lot of people will be watching that. Um, yeah. But- and by the way, they one, one of the things that they'll be watching is Kamala Harris, uh, right, who sits exactly. on the Senate Judiciary Committee and who is going to be there and, you know, who is known for her sharp uh, questioning, you know, sharp <laughs> prosecutorial questioning. I think we may see a different Kamala Harris, because when she was doing this before, she was not working for the Biden campaign. And I think they are going to clip her wings a little bit to make sure. That, and, you know, she may right. she probably has the, the the political judgment herself to know that that would not be a, a necessarily a smart All thing right, to do. Look, just, that's our show for next week on the, as right. the hearings begin. <laughs> Let's stick to what we got this week, starting with the tax returns, then going to the debate. So let's get right to it with uh, David Enrich. We now have with us for a return appearance on Skullduggery, David Enrich, author of Dark Towers, Deutsche Bank, Donald Trump, and an Epic Trail of Destruction, and the business editor of the New York Times. David, welcome back to Skullduggery. Thank you. Before my boss kills me, I'm the business investigations editor. Not the, the business, business editor. investigations editor. Even better and more apt for skullduggery. So, you know, quite the bombshell. Your paper dropped the other day on Trump's long-sought tax returns. There's so much here. I think it was, what, a 10,000-word story, practically. What 
for you? I understand you didn't work directly on it, but you've followed Trump's finances as closely as anybody. What for you are the major takeaways from this story? Man, I don't even know where to begin. There's there are just so many. I mean, I, I guess you have to start with just the basic one, which is that we now know definitively that Trump has paid virtually no taxes for most of the recent past, including while he was president. And that is, you know, not terribly surprising. I think a lot of people have suspected that for a long time, but to actually know that factually now is a pretty big revelation. And I think that's kind of gotten lost in some of the, among the people who know this stuff best because everyone kind of has assumed this, but actually now being able to say that factually is, that's a really big deal. And it's really, I mean, it's shocking. You know, this is a guy who his revenues have been extremely high. He's boasting about his prowess as a businessman. He lives this life of luxury. And yet he has paid less income, federal income tax than, you know, the overwhelming majority of people in this country. I mean, I think maybe that will be lost for, you know, investigative journalists and, you know, people who have been following this very closely. But for average Americans and average voters, particularly today, on the day of the first debate, this is what's memorable, right? This is what people are going to be able to really understand and, and, and grasp. But I want you to break that down a little bit and make sure that we understand what it means and why he could only pay either nothing or $750. Because, you know, at some level for people who don't really understand the tax laws, if it is true that he was putting more money into these businesses than taking out. In other words, he was losing money. You know, I pay taxes on my income, on money that I make, but he's not making money. So explain, is it something that he's doing that's improper or illegal, or is it the system that is rigged and um, improper? Well, the system is, I mean, putting aside Trump even, the system is completely messed up. And the tax code has been written in a way to basically encourage perfectly legal tax avoidance for a very long time. And it's only gotten more so in the Trump presidency, thanks to the 2017 tax law. So there's no question that the tax code is completely slanted in favor of people and institutions that have the resources to concoct really sophisticated and I I would argue generally fraudulent ways of avoiding taxes. Now, again, that's perfectly legal. In Trump's case, it's honestly a little unclear to me to what degree his de minimis tax bill is a result of clever and kind of conniving tax engineering and financial engineering, or it's just the natural consequence of his businesses losing a ton of money and him losing a ton of money. And it's just kind of pick your poison, right? And Trump has either been very clever and sophisticated in basically avoiding taxes for a long time, or he just doesn't have to pay taxes because his biz- he's been running his businesses into the ground. And right. I think that's that's the type of thing that the tax information that the Times has collected and been analyzing is it's a little hard to tell from that because it, clearly it shows that these businesses are money losing and just enough to get wipe out his tax bill. It's unclear though, to what extent that's a mirage or it's actually reflective of how in the trouble that these businesses are as, in. As I understand it, David, the core issue for why he didn't pay taxes is because he claimed these $700 million in losses 
related to the Atlantic City casino mm-hmm. business that led to a $72.9 million refund that he was able to stretch over all these right. years. And that has been the subject of this years-long audit that he's used as the excuse for not releasing the taxes. So what should we make of that $700 million claim in losses? And secondarily, you know, why would it take, what is it, 10 years for this audit to be resolved and it still hasn't been resolved? Well, I mean, I think what do you make of on the first question, what do you make of this huge $700 million loss? I mean, there's a few things. One is that these businesses were a complete mess. And that's not just, you know, some weird circumstance of nature that these businesses were a mess. They were a mess because Trump poured tons of money into them and did not run them properly. And therefore they generated big losses. That's not, it's not like, that's not naturally occurring phenomenon. That's because of bad business operations. And yeah, the tax code entitles people to take big losses on things and, you know, pull them forward over many years to minimize their future tax bills. And again, what we know, or at least what I know from what we have, is it's limited in terms of what it shows. And because money is fungible, right? So there's just because he's losing money on one thing doesn't mean he's necessarily losing money on another thing, especially when it's spread over years. It doesn't necessarily have a bearing or it doesn't necessarily reflect the true state of its businesses. And to me, the second question is in many ways more important, which is what on earth is going on with this 10-year audit? And I don't know is the short answer. Talking to experts and talking to my colleagues about this, it seems quite unusual that an audit of this nature were it just focused on one particular thing would be taking quite this long. It's, it's apparently been stalled in this congressional committee, the, the tax oversight committee. And we don't understand the circumstances of that. We don't, and look, Trump has said repeatedly that he is only refusing to release his tax returns because of an IRS audit. I just don't think we should put any stock in that whatsoever since there is nothing prohibiting him even with an audit ongoing. From I just have a, 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 one follow-up to this, which is that I, throughout the whole story, there's no mention of Trump's accountants. Uh, mm-hmm. Mars, which has been the subject yeah, of the legal yeah. battle. Yeah, right. And the response that some might give, I'm sure the Trump campaign will give, is, hey, like a lot of rich folks and even not so rich folks, they turn over their income and debts and liabilities to their accountants, and the accountants figure out what they can get away with to the extreme of tax avoidance. That's what accountants do, try to save you as much money on your taxes. So... I guess twofold question. One is, did it sort of raise your eyebrows that there's no mention of the accountants at all in this long story? And what's the response to those who say, look, I'm sure his accountants did whatever they could to save him as much money as they can. That was their job. Well, I mean, first question, I wouldn't say I'm surprised. I mean, there was a lot of stuff that wasn't mentioned in that first story, which was very long, but also, you know, it we, space is limited. And uh, I think, as we've said, there are going to be 
there's multiple more additional stories in the pipeline here that I think will shed more light on a variety of different things. But look, the t this is back in 2018, the Times did a huge story on Trump's uh, on the Trump family's finances and taxes. And one of the conclusions that investigation reached is that the Trump family had engaged in what we termed outright fraud at times in evading taxes. And we are not making that same allegation in this story. There's not an allegation that by the times anyway, that there is there's something illegal or really improper in the way that Trump handled handled this. Well, our point is that I, I mean, at least my takeaway from this is that there is again, it's kind of you can view this one of two ways, neither of which is very favorable to the president. One way is that he is engaged in perfectly legal but very kind of clever and slate of hand maneuvers to minimize his taxes, which again is perfectly legal, but is that what you want your president doing? The other, is, which in some ways is more damaging, is that these losses are totally genuine and he doesn't owe any taxes because he has done such a terrible job of operating his businesses over the past couple of decades. And for a man who ran, who based his 2016 candidacy on his track record as his businessman, I, I, to me, again, it's not surprising to people who've been following this closely, but that is a pretty jarring revelation. David, uh, let me just one follow up on the former, which is to say, you know, very creative tax avoidance or counting shenanigans, and then we'll get into the, the, the latter. One example of the former might be that he was paying, they apparently paid something like $750,000 uh, in consulting fees to his daughter Ivanka Trump for managing hotel deals, apparently, right. which I think was part of her job anyway. She was already so, an employee getting paid by the Trump so, organization. Yeah, so, yeah. so explain that. Break that down I, for I us. Can't, I can't explain it. I mean, yeah. I can tell you what we've reported, and it, yeah. it's weird, right? It doesn't make any sense why someone who is, I mean, she was not only an executive of the Trump organization, but the Trump organization on its website, non Ivanka's website, was boasting about her kind of direct involvement in her capacity as an executive at the Trump organization in working on these deals. So the why on earth they would also be paying her consulting fees? I mean, one reason is that that, and again, this is me speculating, and I think the Times has speculated about this, is that that would even claim that as a deduction that would reduce your, you know, your it would reduce kind of cut into your bottom line, which reduces your taxable income. And we, I, to me, one of the strengths of this story and this reporting project in general is that the Times has been laying out the facts and letting people come to their own conclusions. And I think being pretty honest and transparent about the limitations on what we know and the conclusions that we can draw. And so in some cases, this is, and again, I'm not sure what the Ivanka situation, it struck me and everyone else, I think, is utterly bizarre. And, and similarly, the fact that Trump, you know, it goes from big things like that to much more kind of minute things that are still telling, like the $70,000 or so that Trump paid on deductible expenses on his hair. You know, that's, I'm a bald guy, so I guess I can't even really fathom that. But that's that's a lot of money to spend on your hair and to claim as a business expense. I think he might be a bald guy too, which is why he <laughs> maybe, spends the seventy thousand dollars. Well, he should just embrace it because bald is yeah. beautiful. <laughs>
I'm not a bald the, uh, guy, and I've never spent that uh, uh, much. But, um, but uh, David, I've got a question about something that you are an expert in, and that is Trump's personal indebtedness. And, mm-hmm. you know, some uh, Democrats have leaped on that, which the Times didn't really play up, although it mentioned that he's got, I think, what, more than $300 million in loans that are that would be due if he's reelected as president. And uh, Nancy Pelosi has called this a national security issue. A lot of Dems are saying we demanding to know who does he owe this money to. And I guess my answer, my question is, hasn't this been hiding in plain sight for years on his financial disclosure? Every year since he began running for president, we've known that he owes these hundreds of millions of dollars, primarily to Deutsche Bank, but also Ladder Capital and uh, Chevy Chase Trust Holdings, other institutional lenders. If this is a national security issue, haven't we known about it since day one? Yeah, I mean, I think we have. And those of us who have been following the story closely, that's not a surprise. I mean, I think there, and, but, and frankly, the the congressional Democrats have been making the argument that this is a national security investigation for basically since they retook control of Congress and at the start of 2019. I mean, this is the basis for the House Intelligence Committee starting an investigation that looked into, among other things, Trump's relationship with Deutsche Bank and whether that it's, that creates national security implications and creates kind of leverage that foreign institutions or individuals might hold over the president. So to me, that was not a surprise. And it's, again, interesting to just see confirmation of what we've all been writing about in black and white in the president's own tax filings. But there's, and there's no question, and there's been no question, that Trump is not only deeply in debt to, in some cases, foreign financial institutions, but also has provided his personal guarantee on those debts which means that you know if there's a default, it's not just the his network of LLCs that are in trouble. It's was him that personally. new that he was personally that he personally guaranteed yeah. these loans? I mean, it has no. It's not. It's it's in my book. It's uh, in your book. Okay, it's, right. But it, right. but that had been based on my reporting and from sources, and it was and from sources who were not on the record. And so again, I think there's. And sadly, not everyone has read my book. So having the New York Times write this in a story that's read by, you know, God, so many people all over the world is, and seeing it in black and white, I think it does advance that. David, on this idea that Trump was a failed businessman, a sort of a sham mogul, what specifically can we extrapolate from these documents about that? I mean, I think the Times talked about the sort of financial vice tightening uh, on him, you know, clearly the fact that you know he wasn't paying taxes because he wasn't making money. But but in terms of the sort of his bottom line, I mean, he talked about being worth ten billion dollars at this point. Ten. That's what I said. Ten billion dollars at this point. Is there any way of determining, you know, what the sort of outer limits of uh, what he is worth now would be from these documents? You know, I don't, I don't, I don't have a precise answer to that. But I think it is almost unfathomable fathomable that he is a billionaire. There's and the the extent of his liabilities and the diminishing value of his assets just based on these businesses not doing well means that and it's not inconceivable his net worth is and very, very small given that given this extent of the financial problems and given how much money to me one of the revelations in this second day story the Times did, which was went in print today, Tuesday, is that just how much of his worth in recent years leading up to his presidency was not based on his real estate holdings or his golf resorts 
or his hotels, things like that, that were all bleeding money. It was based on this mirage that he and NBC had created around The Apprentice. That, and that was allowing him not only bringing in huge money from The Apprentice directly, but really increasing the royalty income and the fees he was generating by licensing his name. And now, because of the damage that his, I think his presidency has done to his image internationally and in the U.S., the value of his brand is really, I think, been deeply undermined. And that means that one of the huge kind of intangible assets that he was citing as, you know, key to his value as a billionaire, I don't think it's gone, but it's really, really yeah. deeply eroded. It's interesting because I was just wondering, I mean, you know, does, you know, if he loses the election on November 3rd, you know, what happens to him? Does he have one more Houdini act in him? But as you say, so much of this is tied to uh, the power of his brand and a, you know, defeated and exposed former president, you know, is going to have a hard time uh, doing that. So it's, it's interesting. Uh, but a defeated president with a hardcore base that continues to, uh, well, I think he's, you know, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, I think maybe his, his next, his next yeah. act is going to be, uh, you know, uh, challenge, you know, the, the next Fox news, right. He's going to be a television. Uh, O-A-N-N. Well, Fox <laughs> yeah. news is yeah. though. So, there's, yep. yeah, there are tens of millions of people who are very closely aligned with the president, believe deeply in him, and they have money to spend. So, you know, I don't think, I don't know, I've, I've gotten it wrong. I think we have probably all have. I've gotten it wrong so many times over the past five years in predicting how this stuff is going to play out that I'm definitely not going to make another bad prediction right now. I want to thank you for uh, for joining us and helping us understand this amazing story of uh, Trump and his uh, convoluted finances. Thank My you. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. We now got to talk about the big Tuesday night debate. Veteran political advisor, strategist, consultant Mike Murphy and Kristen Soltis Anderson, veteran pollster, Mike and Kristen, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you for having us. And in Mike's case, welcome back for a return appearance. So look, a lot to talk about here, but yes, as we You're go- supposed to plug the podcast, remember? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Mike, we should add, is the host of a rival podcast, Hacks on Tap, with David Axelrod and now uh, Robert Gibbs. So um, after you get done downloading Skullduggery, go to Hacks on Tap. But just to start out, the um, polls consistently show uh, Joe Biden in a uh, reasonable lead nationally and competitive in almost every battleground state, if not ahead. How important is this debate for President Trump? And what does he have to do to change the balance in this election? And what does Biden have to do to make sure he doesn't? Kristen, why don't we start with you? Biden being in the lead right now means he has more to lose and less to gain. So he needs to be playing the do no harm strategy as much as possible. What's working for him is the bar has been lowered so significantly. The Trump campaign has spent the last many months talking about how Biden is supposedly non-functional. And the Biden team lately, you know, they've been calling a lid at 9 a.m. You know, he hasn't been as visible, hasn't been doing things. 
Now, today you have Fox News reporting that in the negotiations over the debate, the Trump team has asked for an ear inspection to make sure nobody has earpieces. And the Biden team has said, no, we're not doing that. And then also that the Biden team has asked for breaks every 30 minutes. And the Trump team said no to that. The implication now is that if Biden can stand up for 90 minutes, he will be kind of declared the victor in this debate. So I think he just needs to make no mistakes. Don't alienate any of the people who have already decided that they're going to vote for you and get out alive. I think for Trump, he's got to shake things up a bit more because he's not benefiting from, you know, people who didn't like Hillary Clinton and didn't like Donald Trump four years ago, more of them broke for Donald Trump. That dynamic is not going to happen this time around. There are fewer undecided voters to begin with. And to the extent they exist, if you don't like Trump and you don't like Biden, you are slightly more likely to end up breaking for Biden at this point. So Trump's got to try to disrupt that dynamic. Uh, Mike, yeah. let me um, just picking up on, on Kristen's point. The bar has been lowered. But for Biden, is there risk that if he does stumble, uh, you know, he did have some fairly weak performances early on during the primaries, and he can sometimes stumble on his words, that maybe less risk, but if he does that, that, that the problem is that that does sort of confirm a perception that's already out there, and that could really harm him? Yeah, Biden has a lousy debate. That's a, a thing and a bad one. Trump has kind of set it up, so Biden's either going to do quite well. To your question, if Biden screws up, it's a worse than normal screw up because Trump will, like Nostradamus, have predicted it and Trump will have something to work with. And that is, to me, the big question. If you've been damned by fate to work on the Trump campaign, for the last month, you've been getting up in the morning, having a quiet cry, and then you look at the calendar and you say, what can we do today to change the topic of the election from firing Donald Trump, which is what's driving it now, to there's something wrong with Joe Biden? They've got to do that. It's the old Obama strategy against Romney and Obama's reelected. It's a time-honored thing for incumbents to do. You think I'm bad? Look at that other guy. The problem is they have been unable to do it. The Biden campaign has been too adroit, and Trump has been too Trumpy because Trump can't change his thing. He's the atomic clock of being Donald Trump. So every day that goes by where essentially nothing happens to change the race in a big dramatic way is a great day for Biden. So this debate is one of the few moments where Biden will really be in the spotlight. And there's at least a chance that the Trump campaign can have enough happen that they reset and they can spend October with some traction, which is what they've lacked, talking about Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. So that is one risk about this particular debate because it's early. You know, it's 29th of September, which means if something does go wrong, Trump has time to exploit it. Now, that said, the Biden people know this, and they also know the gravity of the election is the country wants to fire Trump, which has been more or less true since a week after Trump got inaugurated. There's never been a great period of wonderful Trump polls, but during COVID and the economic pain attached to it, Trump's numbers, Trump's made his numbers worse with his activities. So this is one of the last attempts for the, the Trump campaign to try to reset the race. And if, if Biden just beats him to a draw, it's a win for Biden. Because then we go back to the, the every day going by where Biden inches closer to, to getting him. And in every state you look at, there is not a state where Trump is scoring on Biden right now. Some are closer. But the whole football game is being played in Trump's end zone, not Biden's. And Trump has to change that. And I'm not sure he has the tools to do it.
So, of course, on the eve of the debate, we had this bombshell New York Times story with his uh, tax returns that uh, have been sought for years, revealing that he paid uh, $750 the year he was elected president in federal income taxes and the same amount the next year as president. How is that playing, Kristen? We don't have a lot of fresh data yet, so this is just speculation on my part. Um, I have not yet been wrong in predicting that, hey, will this bombshell change the race? The answer is no, and that's almost always been correct up until this point. This could be different, and, and I say could be different because this has a much closer tie to people's own pocketbooks than oh my gosh, did someone meet with Russian operative X? You know, those kinds of stories that would be, hey, is this a bombshell? No, it's not a bombshell. This one, people can say, he only paid what in taxes? Because I know what I paid in taxes. And it was a heck of a lot more than that. You know, so that to me is is something that could make it make a difference. Now that the question of this exposing that he's maybe not as successful a businessman as as proclaimed, if that was going to work, that would have been a more successful thing to bring up the first time around when he ran and, and didn't and, really and it work was. then. There, there were plenty of stories about what a lousy businessman he was, about his multiple right. bankruptcies and you know sh- sort of shady business practices overseas. That, I think, yeah. was baked in the cake. But I agree that that $750 figure is something simple and basic that everybody can understand. Mike, do you see it as a game changer? No, I think the race is too dug in for that. And, you know, I'm guessing too, but I think I think it hurts Trump in, in two ways. The first is what you've all been talking about, that everybody can play the beer and pretzel game of, huh, you know, I paid more taxes than Donald Trump. So this is relevant and will break in into people's knowledge. Remember, the other problem in the polling for Trump is he has to win the undecided in a huge ratio to catch up to Biden because there's not that much undecided. He's got to win almost all of it. And it's very rare for an incumbent in trouble to you know, break better than a slight minority share of the undecided. So this, all this tax noise gets in the way. It just denies Trump the media bandwidth to get an offense going, because we're now going to be in taxville for a week. So I think it will break through. I think it'll reinforce people are anti-Trump. I think it'll chisel away at his supporters a little because they're a hero of success. We, we have the most powerful case yet that he's a bad businessman. It's not a few people saying he never made a payment to my plumbing company on a subcontract job. Now it's clear the guy is an epic money loser. I mean, it's just unbelievable. I had a tweet that I was surprised kind of caught on. I said, you could take an angry chimp, put him on a small barge stack with $400 million in gold bars, and he couldn't lose money by throwing them overboard as fast as Trump has. And that thing just exploded on the internet. So I I think even the bad businessman thing may break through. But the thing I think people are missing is just the internal game here. It is clear for the last 25 years that Trump has spent most of his energy trying to prove to the world that he's really, really rich. It is very important to him. You know, a lot of what he's done, he's gotten fights with Ford Magazine, I'm not high enough. It is pretty clear. Any tax-savvy billionaire, which means every billionaire, who reads that New York Times story can tell that with the huge operating losses and the the mountain of debt, as much as half a billion dollars if you count the pending IRS uh, trouble he's got, he may not be, if you brought in honest accountants, he may not be a billionaire anymore, and he's sure heading to Palookaville as he's burning cash. So Trump knows that, and he knows they're all snickering at him. And the effect that'll have on Trump's head 
is going to be an H-bomb in that interesting space. So I think it'll really affect his performance. I would not be surprised tonight if he spends half the debate saying, you know, I'm a billionaire. Let me, <laughs> and he'll start, to, you know, I, I own this land that's worth at least 10 times what I paid for it in Kansas because he's that insecure. So this psychologically was an H-bomb to Trump, and it's going to affect his performance. So, Kristen, if you're Joe Biden and, you know, looking at the polling and what voters care about right now, are you going to lean into these character issues involving Trump? And also, you know, this is an opening. I mean, the, the tax story is an opening for, for him to continue with the whole Scranton versus Park Avenue populist argument? Or do you really want to stay really focused on coronavirus, which is, you know, the pandemic, which affects every American. And you obviously can make a pretty convincing case that the president has not led well on. I would spend more time on the coronavirus issue because what people think about Donald Trump's character has to be baked into the cake at this point. If you are still on the fence about whether Donald Trump is a good guy or not, I would love to meet you and do an extensive focus group with you. Um, but I'm not sure that that person exists. So I think the character questions, while, while I think Mike is completely right, bring up things about his business record, needle him on that kind of thing because that'll get him off message, that'll rattle him more. I think the, the COVID situation is one where it was so astonishing to watch the difference between the Democratic and Republican conventions, which I actually thought the GOP convention did some things well, but it sort of ignored the fact that there is a global pandemic that has gripped our country and plunged us into a historic recession and has destroyed people's ability to live their lives as, as they choose. Um, and consistently when I see polls about what is the number one issue, coronavirus and how you're going to handle it is the top issue. And Joe Biden in the most recent echelon poll, I think he had a 13 point advantage on who do you trust more to handle this issue. So I think stay on that message. Look, when the stuff hit the fan and Donald Trump was in charge, look what happened. Don't you want your normal life back? We need to get the virus under control. I'm the guy to do it. I think it's a strong message for him because I don't know what Trump's, Trump's response is. I, I closed the borders uh, at the airports in January. And that's kind of it. What has he done since then to help us overcome this virus? He doesn't have a great answer. I think Biden should just consistently nail him on that. Yeah, no, I agree with that. With, with just one caveat, you know, I'm the strategic advisor to Republican voters against Trump, and we're running this thing we call Orange Crush down in Florida. We're spending millions of dollars to break him there, because you break him there, you got him everywhere. And so we've done seven focus groups, a bunch of polling of these kind of soft suburban, undecided R's and independents. And the thing that surprised me the most is COVID is definitely top of mind. It is, it is, it's the sun around which the planets are revolving. But they give Trump a little bit of slack, much more than I would, on the fact that it's not his fault. He didn't cause it. Any president would have been hurt by this. And then you can kind of go litigate. He's been incompetent on the response, and there's some power there. But when you start doing pure death toll at him, they push back. All seven focus groups. It was I was shocked by this. So Biden, I agree, should keep the focus on uh, coronavirus, and you know, but he should be nuanced in that. If he starts screaming murderer Trump, it's a big mistake. The other thing I'd say that that we found, and a lot of our advertising is about this, which tested by far the best, is people are so tired of the fighting 
and the riots in the streets and all that, rather than take sides and fight some more, they really want somebody who will unite the country. And they give Biden an advantage of three to one. It's his best issue on bringing us together as one team to fight COVID and get the economy going. That is all Biden. So the more that argument, which is appealing to those people, becomes the center of the race, the better Biden does. So Biden, well, Trump is chewing the podium and, and you know throwing rocks and going crazy. All right, you're, you're tired of romper room here? You'd like to have a president again, bring the country together, be America. All that stuff is rocket fuel for Biden. The last thing I'd say I'd be thinking about if I were Biden is Trump's like the spider right now hanging from one filament, which is Trump is perceived as better on the economy. So the extent people get, you know, more comfortable about coronavirus, this is why Trump's always talking about a vaccine. You know, in three weeks, you go to the drugstore, take a pill, it's all over. Let's talk about the economy. That Trump has an advantage on. Biden's got to keep chipping away at that to take away some of that advantage. And that's what Joe from Scranton versus the billionaire cabinet, you know, the spot they're running, all that is about. And I think, you know, Biden doesn't have to win it, but if he can chop Trump's edge from nine points to four on that, that clips the last thread and really, really will finish them off. So as we've been talking, I've been thinking about the amazing craziness of our news cycle, because we are more than 15 minutes into this discussion. And we haven't even mentioned that last week we had the epic news that the Mitch McConnell and the Republicans were going to push through a Supreme Court nominee with only a few weeks before the election, a Supreme Court nominee who could fundamentally change the uh, balance in the court for decades to come. So I want to ask you about about that, because it seems to me, on the one hand, the unseemly rush to push through the nominee would seem to play in Biden's favor, that there's got to be some public recoil at that. On the other hand, we have a nominee, Amy Coney Barrett, who has an attractive personal profile, and that there is some risk for the Democrats in going after her too hard in these upcoming hearings and um, risking a backlash over that. So give me your thoughts on the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett and how it's going to play. Um, Kristen, go first. The nomination, I think, makes it, it, of course, Trump was going to make a nomination. There are two things that unite today's Republican Party in the Trump era, and that's loving to cut taxes and confirm judges. Like that's, those are the, the, that's the glue holding everything together during these strange times. So of course he was going to make a nomination. And of course, Mitch McConnell was going to do anything possible to to confirm this judge. This is in the mind Despite of some the blatant hypocrisy of w saying the exact opposite of what he'd been saying during Mer when he stopped Merrick Garland from even having a hearing. Well, he would push back and say he always points yeah. out that there was that caveat about, oh, it's when the parties are different. Although there are that's some not things, what like he Lindsey emphasized, Graham, like Lindsey yeah. Graham, who very much more recently said, oh, no, we wouldn't do it. And now he's doing it. So for to be sure. So there are a lot of public polls on this that the way they are worded tends to show an advantage for Biden on the issue. We asked it a little bit differently in, in Echelon's polling. We wanted to get, we sort of wrote our question with the assumption Trump is going to nominate someone because you had to have 
put the stuff in the field like a week before in order to get the good data. And we found that there's a very slim difference, like 43% say the Senate should vote on whether or not to confirm Trump's nominee, regardless of the election results. And 46% say the Senate should only consider someone nominated by the winner of November's election. And then 11% are unsure. So we find a slightly closer divided answer to that particular question than some of the public polling would suggest. I think the biggest effect is this just further fuses the top of the ticket with folks further down ballot. So if you are a Republican senator in a red state and the base hasn't loved you because you criticize Trump, maybe this helps you. It reminds those voters, hey, this is why you need to send me, Tom Tillis, back to Washington. But if you are Cory Gardner or Susan Collins, you don't want to be fused closer to the top of the ticket because you need a lot of people who are going to vote for Joe Biden to also vote for you. So I think that's the main risk to Republicans here. I don't think it changes much of anything about Trump versus Biden, but it may have effects at the Senate level. Mike? Yeah, I agree on Trump versus Biden. I mean, first thing, don't debate a process issue. Nobody cares but editorial writers. It It is a think move by the Republicans. If, I, I think Trump has every right to nominate and campaign on it. If the Republicans hold the Senate majority, they have every right to force it through uh, under this ridiculous 50% thing that, of course, I can assign some blame on a long chain of collapse, starting with the borking uh, stuff that Teddy Kennedy did, and then Mitch McConnell on non-Supreme Court judges. All, the whole story of the Supreme Court and the Senate is a story of decline. But as far as the politics are involved, look, a, a, a late Supreme Court fight out in the real world means a big abortion fight. Well, that does nothing to help Trump get the suburbs back, which is how he'd win. So it, it, there's no upside for Trump there. Now, does it help a Joni Ernst in a more pro-life state? You know, you can, as Christian did, you can make arguments or some parts of the country where that could that could be a net plus to the, the Republicans, but I'm not sure an overwhelming one. The move for Biden, and they're going to make it here. Again, remember, if you're in Biden headquarters, you're looking every day we kill is the day we've won the race. So what do we got in terms of big smoke bombs? Well, we can tangle him up in his taxes for a week, and that's a week he won't have. That's a win for us. Now we can tangle him up for two weeks on the ACA. We'll go back to our best midterm election issue, which is these sons of bitches, millionaire Republicans, want to rig the Supreme Court to take away your pre-existing conditions. That is a laser sword. There are a lot of former Republican congressmen from 2018 who can tell you about that one. And now they get it again. So in Biden world, you're high-fiving each other on the politics of it because you've got two good things to jam up Trump with to keep Trump from doing anything to you. So and the other thing is just in the, you know, this race, again, as Christian said, and I agree, is kind of locked in. But there's one group where Biden would love to make some progress with, which is non-college educated white women who are cracking a little bit. And the ACA issue cuts like a monster there. So, you know, th this thing is giving by the Republicans think, hey, we've changed the subject from COVID. You have, but you've given Biden two 300 pound clubs in the presidential race to stay on offense. Again, in the Senate, you can argue there are like this should help Lindsey Graham, who's in an oddly tight race. Now, it won't help him with the editorial board of the New York Times or, or in Manhattan or out here in Hollywood, where I'm coming from on this podcast. But in South Carolina, a pro-life fight, not a bad fight for Lindsey. So I want to ask one more question just on the kind of tactics in this debate and then maybe step back and talk a little bit about the contours of the race more generally with the time that we have remaining. And Mike, I have heard you say over and over again on, on Hacks on Tap that, you know, Trump is going to come after Biden with the personal attacks. He's going to go after Hunter and the family and, you know, whatever else, Tara Reid, and that Biden 
has to keep cool. He can't show anger. And I want to just press you on that a little bit, because I wonder if that's exactly right and whether uh, there isn't some risk there. I mean, it, it, it you know, makes you think a little bit. It's obviously different. But, you know, Dukakis asking, uh, you know, being asked about, you know, how he would react if his wife was was raped. I mean, if you're if your own kid is attacked, don't people expect you to show a little emotion? Yeah, no, I, 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 to be clear, I'm for that. It's just, it has to be controlled. Biden has a temper. And I think a lot of this debate will be the first 10 minutes will be a jump off for one of them trying to establish dominance, which will turn into kind of a weird slappy fight, I think. And Biden has to be a little careful on that because Biden's the anti-Trump. He's the president. He's the guy who's emotionally steady, has a plan, unite the country. Trump is always going to be able to one-up you in an auction of craziness. In fact, if I were Biden, knowing how insecure Trump is, I'd open with the joke, hey, Donald, before we get started, you know, if you need to borrow a few bucks, I, I brought a little for you because Trump Trump hates, hates, hates to be seen as not a rich guy. And he has no sense of humor like any good sociopath. So I think Trump will do stuff. You know, Bo, I'm sorry he's dead, but, you know, he never was under fire, wasn't a real soldier and stuff like that to get because they're looking at videotape of Biden snapping on the campaign trail a couple of times with there was some fat guy he got in a fight with and wanted to have a push up contest in Iowa. I mean, B- Biden can go there. How many minutes into the debate before we hear Hunter Biden's name? Oh, I actually, I would have said a week ago, three minutes with Trump. Now, because I think Trump is really going to want to talk about he's really a billionaire and the New York Times for a while, it may get pushed back to, you know, 12 to 17 minutes. Because Trump, you know, Trump is a guy who will scratch you. As Christian knows, any of us who've done candidates know they have itches they want to scratch. There's something that bugs them. And the minute they get to a debate, they really want to say, you know, people say I didn't write the left-handed orange peeling rule. And that's a damn lie. I passed that legislation. You know, they have these things they want to correct that are just gnawing at them. And most of them, we train them and they have some control. Trump will just blurt out what's bothering him. And while he wants to attack Biden, right now he's mad at the media for all the lies about he's really a billionaire because he knows there's some billionaire party where Mike Bloomberg is giggling at him. You know, there's a famous story, I don't know if it's true in the record business, about a party where Elton John and Paul McCartney were standing at the wall and some third huge rock star, I can't remember who it is, came up and said, you know, Madonna's really mad she wasn't invited. And allegedly, Elton John said, well, not enough hits. <laughs> you know, you know, it's like the club. <laughs> and I would argue she ought to be invited, by the way. But Trump knows the club's laughing at him now. They know they've read his tax returns and he's a fraud. So I think he'll be scratching that itch for a while instead of taking the offense that, you know, would be a smarter move for him. Kristen, let me ask you more just generally about where the where you think the race stands right now, because, you know, Mike mentioned at the outset, Biden is leading nationally seven, eight, nine points uh, consistently and obviously in the um, swing states as well. But put it in the context for the, you know, the Democratic bedwetters out there, uh, <laughs> put it in the context of you know previous races of the recent past. So. Kerry Bush, Obama Romney, Obama McCain, because I think most people is sort of baked in the idea that, you know, these races are always going to be razor thin. That may not be the case this time. What do you think? So I think in the polling world, I am constantly fighting against emotion infiltrating my analysis. And I can readily admit that in 2016, There were polls at the national level, especially, that showed the race pretty close. And gosh, especially in the Republican primary, 
but my emotions were telling me there's no way this is going to happen, right? There's no way. And so that just infiltrates your analysis. I feel like the flip side is what has happened to too many analysts this time around, where we remember with, we have the PTSD of what happened on election night last time. And we're going, I know the poll says he's up by nine in Pennsylvania, but maybe he's not. And it's, <laughs> and, and so I, I think a lot of that is still, uh, it, it's not just, you know, Democrats, although in, in our polling, we do find that Democrats are much more likely to believe that, like, they're less likely to believe their candidate's going to win versus Trump voters believing Trump is going to win. But I, I do still stay up at night a little bit, because on the one hand, polling has fixed a lot of the stuff that was wrong in 2016. In past elections, stuff has gone wrong. 2012, for instance, uh, not enough cell phones were called. And so you, you, some of the polls showed Romney doing a little better than he actually did. You fix that. You call more cell phones. 2016, uh, not enough voters without a college degree. Okay, so you fix that. You make sure you've got a sample that's got enough people who don't have college degrees, so you're getting it right. But what's the next battle? What's the next thing that's wrong that pollsters can't fix? I've seen evidence that there's both a shy Trump and a shy Biden voter effect that are canceling each other out at the national level, but might be having an effect at the state level. I mean, it's on the one hand, Biden's advantage is pretty commanding at this point. There's a reason why so many of these models show him with a 70, 80 plus percent chance of winning. But I just can't help but think that in a strange year like 2020, and with weird things like what might happen with naked ballots in Pennsylvania, if you've got 5% of mail-in votes getting thrown out in a key swing state, how do you as a pollster account for that? So these are the sorts of things that worry me about what would otherwise seem like a pretty clear-cut analysis that this is Biden's race to lose. Last question, because I know, um, Mike, you got to go. A week from now, what's this race going to look like? Mike, you go first, then Kristen. I think it's going to look pretty much like it does now, but one beat, just one click better for Biden. I think the big story next week, and the media will get this wrong, they think it was the debate, but it's been true for 10 days, is Ohio is hugely in play. Biden is ahead. There's a massive Republican panic in Columbus. Biden's out-resourcing Trump now in Ohio. And people will think it's after the debate, but it happened before the debate, and there'll be a lot of Ohio talk tomorrow. Kristen? I mean, next week. Yeah, I don't expect the next, barring something completely crazy happening in the debate, uh, I don't expect it to change much. The Supreme Court hearings will begin, I believe that's the week of October 12th. That could be another inflection, that could be an inflection point, but this has been such a stable race that you can't go wrong betting on it not changing too terribly much. Let me just say, before you go, Mike, on Ohio, I just want to say for our listeners that everyone should read Yahoo News' Andrew Romano's excellent piece on uh, mm -hmm. why Ohio may be the tipping point state. And our not-so-secret source for that story was Mike Murphy, who uh, I heard talking about Ohio on another rival podcast, friendly rival podcast. <laughs> uh, but the interesting point that Romano makes in that story is that what's significant in some ways about Ohio is it is one of those states that counts mail-in ballots as they're coming in. Right. Uh, and so we may know, and I think their polls closed at like 7.30 Eastern Standard Time, so we may know the results early, and if uh, Biden does win in Ohio, it may be over as soon as we hear the yeah. Buckeye State report in. No Republican has ever been elected president without carrying Ohio. That is huge, and Florida's the same thing. You get a live count. 
So Florida, where no Republican has won in, I believe it's 96 years since 1924, is a similar deal. So if those two pop quickly, and if either one of them go to Biden, it preempts a lot of this crazy Trump five days of mystery that, you know, that I'm sending Bill Barr to burn all the absentee ballots. Or all. all that can deflate if either backbreaker goes. And as of today, Biden, I think, would win them both. Now, real quick plug on my way out. And thank you, guys. Keep up the skullduggerying. But I know you, you might attract some non-MAGA listeners on this podcast. I'm just joking. So if you want a little <laughs> campaign therapy today, this is a shameless plug, but go to the Twitter feed of Republican Voters Against Trump, rvet.org. We put up a spot today in Miami, a 60-second Spanish spot, though there's an English translation, basically linking Trump to every dictator in the world, hammer and sickles. You haven't seen one of these spots from the R's in 20 years, and it, it's a lot of fun, and I think if, if you've had it with Trump, you will enjoy it. A little agitprop from Mike Murphy and friends. We're looking forward to it. <laughs> see All you right. guys. Great to see you, Chris. Thanks right. so much. Thanks Mike, so much, Kristen, Mike. Thanks Kristen, a lot. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. This is fun.